Get ready to peel back the layers of fruity goodness with It's Bananas, the podcast that acknowledges that life doesn't make a lick of sense, but licking fruit does. Join your host, Becky Onesta, the fruit maven, as she takes you on a tantalizing journey through the world of fruit, where pleasure, fun, joy, and connection await with each succulent bite. It's deep, it's delicious, and it's bananas. Hi everyone and welcome back to Snack Time here on It's Bananas. This is Becky, also known as the Fruit Maven. As always, today we're going to take a look at what's on my mind and what's on my table. So what's on my table today? Cherries! So I'm going to review two different types of cherries today, even though uh, I actually have four different types of cherries on my table and maybe another two in my refrigerator. Uh, That might seem like a lot. It kind of does to me. I went a little overboard this week. Uh, But it actually pales in comparison to the fact that there are actually over 1,200 types of cherry varieties in the world. I did not know that. I... I feel like cherries is not a fruit that I have seen a lot of varieties of. I've maybe seen three or four. So I have two that I want to try today. And then I have so many more because the two I'm going to try are really unique. And then I wanted to just personally compare them to the types that I can get at the grocery store. So the one you can get at the grocery store, it'll be called like the red cherry. That's the Bing cherry typically. And then there's Rainier's, which are kind of the yellowy orange cherries. So I just wanted to see how they were different. And then I got the same Rainier's and red cherries at the farmer's market and I wanted to compare the farmer's market to the grocery store. I don't know. I, I, I went crazy and I had a lot of fun with it. I'm not sorry. So broadly speaking, cherries fall into two large categories, sweet and sour. Sour is sometimes referred to as a tart cherry and I of course have one of each, one sweet and one sour today. So the sweet cherry is called the black Republican cherry And yes, there is a really great story connected to the name of this cherry, which I will tell you a little bit later. And the sour cherry is called the Balaton cherry, which also has a really fun, very different story. So fun fact though, I don't think I was actually supposed to get my hands on these Balaton cherries. I found them in a box when I was looking for fruit. They were in a box on the side of a shelf near some plums and they were really pretty. And when I So I grabbed some and then I took them up to the counter to pay and the woman said a little bit gruff, but mostly kind of shocked. She was like, where did you get these? You are not supposed to have these cherries. I'm like, um, I can show them to you, (laughs) show you where I found them. They were just in a box. So I walked her over to where the box of cherry was. She grabs the box super fast, starts muttering to herself like, oh, I don't, why are these out here? Shuffles off to the back. okay she comes back and she's like those were not supposed to be out but then she weighed them and let me pay for them and keep them so I guess I got lucky with the Balatons and therefore so did you so speaking of getting lucky nope (laughs) that was not the right segue let's just go with it we're getting lucky and getting juicy (laughs) let's talk about what's on my mind Today, I'm wondering, is joy the cherry on top? Said another way, what the hell is joy? (laughs) 
So emotions have been and continue to be studied by lots of different disciplines, sociology, psychology, neuroscience, mental health, etc., philosophy. They all come at it from a completely different lens and have very different set of goals. They're all potentially useful but limited in their understanding and scope. So I want to be very clear today and say that I am not a scientist. And from what I can tell, despite all these disciplines studying emotion for decades, if not centuries, the jury is still out on the way emotions, language, our mind, and our bodies all play together to create meaning and to execute this thing we call the human experience. And all of that is really largely within just the neurotypical set of scientific studies. That's not even beginning to dive into the true beauty and complexity of the neurodivergent ways of processing the world around us. So we have a fairly nebulous starting point. Nonetheless, there are two broad theories on emotions that I want to briefly mention today before we get a little juicier and attempt to define some words for ourselves. One is the, is the essentialist point of view. This idea is that emotion can be reduced down to its essential fingerprint that is born into us, is recognizable, and is characterized by a common set of traits that can be universally recognized by others. The other camp is a constructionist point of view, which roughly suggests that emotions are socially, linguistically constructed categories that are culturally agreed upon and that we use to predict and explain reality. So personally, again, from my very non-scientific point of view, I fall more into the constructionist camp. And here's what I think, not because I've done any rigorous studies to contribute to the larger discussion on these things, but because it's helpful in making meaning of my own life and in creating an agreed-upon language that helps me connect with you. I think emotions are a living thing that's being actively defined and created on a personal level, but also on a collective societal level. One piece of understanding those emotions is the language that we use to describe it, and therefore, language is also a living thing. An example of what I mean by that, I mentioned on, I think it was my first episode, that BTS and their fandom army use the phrase, I purple you, to describe a particular emotion that for that group includes love and trust. It's a combination of language and feeling created or crafted by one person, Kim Taehyung, and then culturally adopted by a subset of people, the BTS fandom. On a smaller scale, I'm trying to create something similar by defining and using a phrase to close out my episodes with I apple you, which I've defined as meaning I'm curious about you, I'm rooting for you and your joy and nourishment, and I hope that we stay connected for a long time. I've shifted the meaning of the word apple within a certain context on a personal level, but also within the culture of this space that we are co-creating. Uh, spoiler, we'll talk a little bit more about the shifting and reclaiming of language when we get back to our black Republican cherries in a bit, so hang tight on that. So, I have to use language to connect with you, and I thought it might be useful for me to explain my thoughts on some of the emotion-based terms that I use. Let's start with joy. What do I mean when I say it? To be honest, I probably use it a bit as a catch-all term at the moment, but I want to get more specific 
to me, joy is a very expansive state. It's almost like the feeling is vibrant and glowing and is bigger than my body. It has an awe-like quality. And generally when I say it, I'm describing a combination of being both rooted in this world, a, a sense of truly belonging, but also this wideness or freedom, like I can accomplish anything or do anything. It's like the purest form of generative power. It's as if I feel like the whole world is on my side and rooting for me. Joy feels very big, so it inherently has a feeling of being connected to the world around me, which in and of itself is part of why I think it's often described as being something that happens only in short bursts and doesn't last that long. It's big, it's intense, it's overwhelming, it's vulnerable, and it is inherently rooted in connection. It can be scary because it is so open. Maybe on another day I'll talk about how a number of years ago I was quite literally medically diagnosed after having a number of tests as having extreme stress induced by joy that was making my hair fall out. So that's a fun uh, story. Joy can be scary, y'all. That's the main point. Uh, So feeling happy, on the other hand, feels a lot more casual to me. It is perhaps more grounded, more in my control in some ways. I particularly love Gretchen Rubin's work around happiness. She has experimented with increasing daily happiness and analyzes what contributes and what detracts to that happiness within family and the world around her. I highly recommend her books. But separately, I don't feel that inspired by the concept of happiness at this point in my life. It feels a bit surfacey to me, and I personally bristle a little bit against what has been contorted as toxic positivity, and often, again, mostly for women, has become a demanded performance based on things like smiling. Look, I like to smile, don't get me wrong. But, example, I used to have a male boss who took time in our one-on-one meetings each week, more than I would care to admit, he would mention which of my female employees smiled a lot and seemed happy to him. And he regularly mentioned one woman, my top performer, by the way, who didn't smile very much, and he didn't really care for that. He wasn't ever concerned with her job satisfaction or the quality of her work, just the female presentation of happiness around the office. He was just letting me know his thoughts. He never ever, not once, commented on the amount of smiling or the perceived happiness of my male staff, by the way. So, while I would like to feel happy regularly in my life, I'm just aiming for something a bit more interesting in terms of language and in terms of life goals and in terms of making meaning out of the world that I live in. Enjoyment. What is enjoyment or the phrase, I enjoy this or that, or I enjoy my life? I recently realized that I enjoy my life most of the time, all inclusive of all the goodness and the problems that I have. And that was a pretty exciting realization for me that I've been expanding the percent of time that I enjoy my life. I enjoy being alive. And what I mean when I say that 
enjoying something feels more like a verb to me. It feels more active and perhaps is a combination of joy and happiness in action. I have, it's like having this general contentment or this idea of being satisfied, but I'm also deeply connected to myself, to the people around me, to the world around me. So it's all kind of coming together. So joy, happiness, and enjoyment, those are the three I really wanted to talk about today. Another day we may dive into words like pleasure, excitement, desire, fun, liking things even, but for today I just wanted to focus in on these three and let's bring it back to an example using fruit. So I can eat a favorite piece of fruit, a blueberry for example, which happens to be in my top five fruits of all time. I can feel briefly happy. I like it. I eat a blueberry. I tend to put it on my cereal. It's nice. I'm not thinking a lot about it. Blueberries, small, cute, make me happy. Or I can slow down and really experience an intentional connection with a blueberry. (laughs) I know that sounds a bit absurd, but when I really connect, when I listen for my preferences and my sen- the sensations happening in my body, when I truly pay attention to the object in front of me with curiosity about its appearance, its texture, its aroma, flavor, where it came from, what stories were around it, what people were involved with its creation, I'm connecting then with you by telling you about it, sharing my thoughts and feelings about it in the moment. When I do all of that, I might be disappointed or unhappy. I might actually taste a blueberry, not like it. I might try a cherry and be annoyed by the pit. It might, there might be elements of that that are unpleasant, but in intentionally connecting with this thing in front of me, I open up significantly more possibilities within that connection. For me, it kind of feels like dropping into something deeper and more universal and yet completely co-created by me. So this piece of fruit, tasting any particular fruit, isn't the source of my joy. It's not bringing me joy, a phrase I don't love, by the way. This piece of fruit, a blueberry, is actually, hang in there with me, I know this is getting a bit lofty, but this blueberry is co-creating possibility with me. So we'll do this in a minute when we taste the cherries and you'll see that it's deep and it's juicy, but it's also quite light and expansive and silly. So the more I bring my whole self to the experience and I'm curious about the object or a person or even a place that I'm interacting with, the more I think joy becomes an available outcome. That's why I say that tasting fruit is a way to practice because part of why I think I enjoy more of my life currently is that without realizing what I was doing, I practiced for years really being present to the opportunity for connection when that didn't feel available in other parts of my life. And then I practiced not shutting down when it showed up. And that not shutting down piece has been far more recent to be able to hold connection and joy. And I'm still very much working on that. But that is the way that I view tasting fruit and why I think it is so fun and meaningful to realize what it offered me. And I'm curious about what it's gonna offer as I begin to do this more with you in this space. So with those definitions tentatively in place around joy, happiness, and enjoyment, 
subject to future revision because I assume this is a learning curve and we may revisit and revise going forward. Let's get to what's on my table and meet these cherries. Both of these cherries, as I said, have fantastic backstories, which I love because it makes me feel like in addition to all the other benefits that I've talked about from connecting with this piece of fruit and figuring out what I like and don't like about it, I also get to be connected to the histories of these fruits and the people who came before me and got them to my table. So I think that is amazing. So the sweet cherry that I have today, as mentioned, is called the Black Republican Cherry. Now this story is so fascinating to me because I just grabbed it off the shelf not realizing it had all of this history embedded within it. So it was named by a horticulturist named Seth Lueling, who also happened to develop the Bing Cherry, the common red one at the grocery store that we have all over the United States. In fact, the black Republican cherry is one of the parent cultivars of the Bing cherry. So this is an heirloom cherry and it's actually on a protected list so that it doesn't go extinct. So it is watched by various groups and uh, to make sure that it keeps growing. But let's talk more about this phrase black Republican because I had not heard of it myself. So the founding of the term black Republican is often attributed to the Illinois Senator Stephen Douglas, who in 1858 was having debates with a Republican running for senator in Illinois. Douglas was the incumbent, and he was running against Abraham Lincoln. So they were running, campaigning for the Illinois Senate seat. So Douglas used this term, Black Republican, as a slur to describe members of the Republican Party who were against slavery. The term went on to become a general slur that was used against abolitionists and any politicians who supported legislation that favored African Americans. Later, abolitionists, and I love when groups do this, abolitionists remarketed the term, took it back as their own, and made it a statement of supporting human rights and equality. And they made it something to be that they were proud of because obviously it represented beliefs and values that they were in fact proud of. So Abraham Lincoln was often labeled as a part of the black Republican movement during his when he went on to for his presidential campaign. During this time, Seth Lueling, our horticulturist, culturalist, chose this name for the cherry varietal he was working on in honor of abolish his own abolitionist viewpoints. And he was using this cherry to make a political statement against slavery during the Civil War. So he was using it as a symbol of freedom against slavery and those injustices. He also, by the way, named a cherry Lincoln later. And when he ultimately named the Bing cherry, he named it after his foreman, who was a Chinese man named Ah Bing. So I don't, Stephen Luoling seems pretty cool. I mean, at least on the surface, this is all I know about him. So I don't really know, but I don't know, I'm, I'm into it. He seems very cool for late 1800s. So that's the story of our black Republican cherry. Let's give it a, a try. So let's look at the appearance. What does it look like? This is a really dark burgundy cherry. It is a, a gorgeous, dark, dark, purpley, black in spots cherry. It doesn't have a lot of red, really, when I compare it visually to like the Bing cherry. The Bing has a little bit more 
of that red coming through, but this is quite a bit darker. It's also quite a bit smaller than the Bing Cherry. This is maybe half to two thirds of an inch in diameter, eh, maybe two thirds of an inch where the Bing Cherry is like three quarters or almost an inch in size. They've got nice little stems, very pretty. If you cut it in half, half of it is pit and half of it is flesh. The flesh also is this gorgeous red black. Like when you squeeze it, the juice almost looks like purpley blood, which I, I don't know why I think that's stunning, but it is. The Balaton cherries, on the other hand, are a really bright, shiny, almost like a true red, maybe a little darker than like a really bright, kind of more typical cherry red if you were to color, you know, like a color crayon. It's a little bit darker than that, but it's a really bright, pretty red, and it has a little bit more of a translucent quality to it. I almost feel like I can't see through it, but there's something about it that sort of makes it look like you maybe could. It's it's really pretty. Like if I were to think of a quintessential looking red cherry, I feel like it would be this. And then when you cut that one open, the inside is that same bright red kind of cherry color. It's not, it's very different than the dark, uh, the darkness of this more burgundy black Republican cherry. The interesting thing, one interesting thing about the color of this Balaton cherry is it is a tart cherry. The common tart or sour cherry in the United States is actually called the Montmorency. I've never had this particular sour cherry, but apparently it's clear or like a very light colored flesh inside. So that's what, if you were to get a sour cherry, that is what would be expected while this is more of a bright, pretty red color. So I'm going to give both of these a five out of five. They're adorable. I mean, they're cherries for goodness sakes. They're really cute. The color of these are gorgeous and the, the juice that comes out of them also completely stunning. All right, let's talk about the aroma. Okay, neither of these really, <laughs> these don't really smell like anything. I'm not, I, they just, they really don't. I mean, they might, I guess there's maybe a faint smell of sweetness. I don't know. It's not even worth describing. It, like, just trust me, it's basically like nothing. <laughs> it's nothing. I'm gonna give these a three out of five because they don't smell bad, which would, I feel like a one or a two needs to actually smell bad, but they don't smell good. I mean, is neutral, neutral smell should get a neutral rating. So these get a three. Okay, let's taste them. Let's start with the Balaton, the tart or sour cherry. Actually, okay, let's talk about this cherry real quick because I haven't told the story of this cherry. So the Balaton cherry also has an interesting story that has a bit of a political nature to it as well, which was unexpected. So this cherry was imported from Hungary in the 1980s, although it wasn't released and made available to the public for almost 20 years until 1998 in the United States. It's named after Balaton Lake in Hungary, but why? Like, why was this one cherry imported from Hungary? So after World War II, when communism came to Hungary, the government introduced these large collective farms and had to decide which cherry would be grown across the country. So they sent breeders out into all the villages because the tree, I guess there's a lot of cherry trees in Hungary. And I don't really understand why they had to choose just one, but they did. I guess that was part of the plan to make everything equal. 
Okay, so breeders have been sent out to all the various villages around Hungary, and then they held a contest. And the winning cherry was the one that was going to be distributed across all of Hungary and become the most widely planted sour cherry in the country. And the winning cherry was called Uifuerto. I am undoubtedly not saying that quite right. I do not, I haven't heard the Hungarian language pronounced, uh, said to me all that many times. And that actually is part of why this cherry is not called the Uifuerto cherry, because the scientists who brought it over from Hungary thought that it was too hard for Americans to pronounce. And so they named the cherry the Balaton because Lake Balaton or Balaton Lake, they thought was a name that Americans could pronounce, even though it's actually nowhere near the village of Uifuerto where this cherry came from. Um, so fun fact though, Hungary still receives a portion of the royalties charged on the Balaton cherry tree every time it's sold, some of which is actually shared with the cultivar's home village of Uifuerto. So hopefully I got that name kind of close for anyone who does speak Hungarian. Please feel free to let me know and correct me. I would love to be able to say it right, correctly. Let's get into it though. How does it taste? Oh, okay. It's, it's definitely sour, but it's not sour. So I, it's not sour like a lemon. It's not miserably sour. It still has a lot of flavor. It does have a bit of a bite to it though. I would, I definitely wouldn't want to eat a lot of these out of hand, like just to snack on, like it doesn't quite have enough sweetness and it's almost got a little that sourness has a little bit of a bitterness or an astringency to it in spots but look it hasn't like nice bouncy cherry flavor on top of it i would i would put this in a salad or something maybe and i would actually use it anywhere that you might use like a pomegranate because those are also a bit tart and i would probably be for this because i think pomegranates are a little bit seedy i like pomegranate juice but crunching into pomegranates isn't my favorite. Whereas I think biting into bits of this sour cherry would be kind of great. Different flavor, but same vibe, basically. Uh, so, okay, let's rate it. So out of hand eatability, I'm gonna give this a three out of five on flavor, but I'm gonna give it a four out of five for potential other uses. Oh, and texture, let's talk about that. The Balaton has this bubble-like quality like when you bite into it it seems like it's almost going to burst like the the skin on the outside is like holding it taut somehow but then when you bite it it doesn't burst like it's not like a popping boba or something like that it just has this nice kind of snappy bouncy quality to it i'm gonna give this a four out of five it it's a nice texture but i still have to deal with there being a very large seed inside which while that the seed doesn't actually bother me it kind of makes it feel fun it also i mean it's that makes it so it's not my ideal okay let's try the black republican oh okay this one's very complex this is a sweet cherry it's, mmm, this has a very rich cherry flavor. Like, it's definitely similar to the Bing, like what you expect out of a cherry, but it almost has a nutty. Man, nutty makes it sound not great, but like it, it, it feels very layered. It almost has a nutty, robust flavor to it. It's far more nuanced. It maybe even has a little bit of a floral quality to it. 
I ooh, I really like this cherry. I would say this definitely gets a five out of five for flavor. And then for texture on this one, great texture, nice dense bite. It doesn't have that same bubbly, snappy texture as the Balaton. It's just got like a nice cherry texture, but it still does have that seed. So I'm again, I'm gonna give it a four out of five. Okay, I pre-cut two of these in half, and so let's do it. Lickability. Okay. Okay. I don't I don't feel like I can say anything chaste about licking the inside of this cherry. I suddenly wonder if some of the origins of the way we use the word cherry. I I don't <laughs> I the so licking it it has a small nub or you know the pit a small hard portion near the top and then it's surrounded by soft juicy flesh um yeah yeah it's very soft i can't i don't think i can talk about it <laughs> i'm sorry i've let you down try it you know what try it i highly recommend cutting a cherry in half giving it a lick report back or don't maybe just have that be a private moment i recommend it let me put it that way five out of five all right let's talk overall what are we giving these cherries i'm going to give both of these cherries a four out of five they're gorgeous they're cute they really live up to their to the cherry vibe out in the world the flavor of both is very different distinct and amazing these are fantastic cherries. If you can get your hands on either one of them, I highly recommend. I am also gonna give myself a five out of five for more or less holding it together through that lickability section. <laughs> so that's a wrap on this week's episode of It's Bananas. I apple you. If you find It's Bananas appealing, it would mean a lot to me if you'd plant a seed of support by giving it a five-star rating and hitting that follow or subscribe button on the It's Bananas show page. Be a peach, share a favorite episode with a friend, and reach out to me on Instagram, at fruitmaven, all one word. 